I'll never forget sitting in this large conference room while a panel of the biggest names in journalism are on the stage talking to all of us mid-level military leaders. And I thought to myself, I don't think these journalists understand just how disappointed, just how disconnected the military is to their industry until you run across a guy like David Hoopstead. You see, David has demonstrated that he can be trusted. David earns the right to hear stories that other journalists are never going to be able to hear because David has just been faithful and honest and trustworthy again and again. So during this interview of Unbeatable, you'll get a chance to hear how David gets access to the kind of warriors and the stories from those warriors that no other journalist gets a chance to hear. I can't wait for you to learn more about David Hoekstead on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. David, thank you so much for being with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I've been looking forward to this all week. Happy yeah. to be here. We got connected on your show months ago, and now you're doing me a solid and returning the favor. I appreciate you coming on Unbeatable with me. Hey, like I said, it's a blast. I can't wait to get into this interview. We can dive into whatever you want, and it's Let's get after it. I'm pumped. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, this is an old pro, by the way, for those of you who are listening to this episode right now. David Hookstead's been um, in media for a, a, a few years, um, actually got your start in um, journalism while you're in college, right? Correct. So I was at the University of Wisconsin. I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do my last year. A woman by the, ne- by the name of Jennifer Cabaney who runs a place called The College Fix, which is a journalism site for college students, reached out. I don't remember how we got connected. I started writing from her, uh, for her, graduated college, went to The Daily Caller, where I stayed for seven years, and then I joined Fox News' Outkick uh, over the summer. So it's been a good run. What were you studying in college uh, when you got connected with Jennifer? So I was a poli-sci major. I actually never studied journalism. So I had to learn about journalism on the fly All after right. the fact a little bit. And and I got to be honest with you, I was a terrible student. I was a very below average classroom student, but I was fascinated in politics, history. So I enjoyed specific things, but overall school really wasn't for me. So luckily I, I linked up with her and it was, it's been good ever since. That's where I got my start. So I owe her a huge thanks. Well, obviously, you survived college uh, at the University of Wisconsin, by the way, which is a great school. And we should talk about Badgers football a little bit in a few (laughs) minutes. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. um, I asked the question about what did you study? Because most people that end up in journalism and especially in news media, they didn't start out that way. And they kind of it, it happened to them instead of them going after it. Um, So it wasn't a surprise to me to hear you say this wasn't the you weren't looking for this. It came and found you without a doubt. And and you're right in your assessment. When I worked, when I started the Daily Call, I'd say half the people there probably didn't have journalism degrees. They were either poli sci majors. Some of them had very random degrees. It's kind of a job you almost have to stumble into by accident. Yeah. Um, And I know my old boss, uh, Tucker Carlson, who's now on Fox News, he used to always say he was against hiring journalism majors because they come with bad habits and they come really? with kind of yeah. preset conditions. Sure. And it's and it's hard to mold them kind of to do what you want. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the reality of the situation. <laughs> well, describe the college fix for a little bit because I've never heard of it. I'm sure that there's some people that are saying, how do I stumble into this too? So what was the college fix? So the college fix is a website that is dedicated to kind of student stories. It, it's, it leans to the right. It kind of focuses on insanity on college campuses, crazy stuff that's going on. So we had a lot of, when I was in school, we had a lot of protests centered around, you know, um, political issues at, up at the state Capitol, there were race issues. So that's kind of what I was doing. There were issues of how is this money being spent? Is it being yeah. spent for stuff that benefits students? They still do it, still exist as far of as course. I know. I think they're still crushing it. So if you're interested, just go search the college fix. And it's it's really narrow and focused on issues that impact college students, which is kind yeah. of neat. 
Um, and, and you'll enjoy it. It's, it's, a, it's a nicely run place. What years were you at the University of Wisconsin? So I graduated the summer of 2015. I started at UW because I, I went to Montana for a year. Uh-huh. Um, I returned home to Wisconsin and I started, um, I left Montana in the spring of 2011. I took a, I took a year at a, at a tech school and then I went to the Wisconsin. So it would have been the start of 2012, I yeah. think, 2012 or 2011. Okay. I asked that because at that point, the U.S. economy is still struggling. There's a lot of people that are still hurting. So it makes sense that there'd be some frustration that spills over onto college campuses all over the nation, right? Yeah. And if you remember, and I don't know how many, to for the viewers, at that time, Wisconsin had just elected Scott Walker governor. Yeah. And he was uh-huh. very popular with some people, not popular with other. And he passed a collective bargaining agreement act that kicked off massive protests. Yeah. And there was still the tail end of that was still happening when I was in school. So it was a very politically charged environment for sure. Yeah, uh, it's one of the only times I remember in my lifetime that the whole nation was watching the Wisconsin governor, uh, you know, kind of policies like that's not typical nationwide news, but everybody was watching the governor at the time and um, lots of criticism from one side and lots of praise from the other side during that time frame. Right. And they flooded the state with protesters, the, the, the Senate or the legislative Dems, they fled to Illinois so they couldn't be forced to vote. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin has some kind of law, and, and I don't remember the particulars, but if you're in the state, they can force you to show up and vote. If you're out of the state, they can hold what? kind of the They can come still. knock on your door and tell you, yeah, you they better can, get out and vote? They, well, if you're an elected official, so yeah. they can actually bring you in as an elected official, force the threshold count for a vote. And uh-huh. they will use the state police to do it. Um, so it's a real thing. So they left the state to stop that from happening. Which I love that the chaos. I love that policy. No more, you know, just not showing up on this really controversial legislation, right? We're coming right. with the police to your door. We're going to get you, and we're going to take you to the, you know, the House or the Senate and make you vote whether you want to or not. I love exactly. that uh, that policy. Um, All right, let's yeah, talk. It's about- wild. Uh, tell everybody about the Daily Caller. What is it? You you spent about seven years there, so I mean, you were um, you worked your way through the ranks there. Tell everybody about the Daily Caller. Yeah, so the Daily Caller was my home for a long, long, long time. About a quarter of my life, roughly. I'm 30. I left uh, not too you're long after. You're so young, 30. and you. I know I. You're am. so young, and you look it, man. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a political website that mostly, again, leans to the right. It's very, in my opinion, it's very fair. They do a lot of good investigative reporting. And then it has a sports entertainment culture that kind of is the underbelly that, uh, gives rise to the other stuff they want to do, if that makes sense. So you're talking about, you could, if you want to read what Trump is up to, you can find that at the Daily Caller. If you want to read what Alabama's football team is doing. You can find that at the Daily Caller. So it's one of the very few news outlets that literally covers everything. Obviously, wow. ABC, Fox, they yeah. do. But in terms of online, uh, so I'm very proud of the work we did there. Uh, my girlfriend, I met her there. Uh, she recently left too, but she crushed it as the White House correspondent. And I wow. got to tell you, the one the one thing that was nice about the caller that the readers obviously don't know is Behind the scenes, we were all very close, certainly in yeah. certainly a group of us. So it felt like home. I mean, I loved some of the people I've, I've gotten to work with. It's a great place. You did a lot of sports while you were there, right? Yeah. So that was my main thing. I did mostly sports, little movie reviews, TV right. reviews, military. And I would write like pro-America stories. Like yeah. I, even though that wasn't necessarily my beat, like if there was uh-huh. a video of like a group of terrorists having bombs dropped on their heads, like I would write that up. Or if there was a video of like, you know, a woman is someone tries to rob a woman and she turns the tables on the bad guy. I love that stuff. Of course. Mostly mostly sports, but a lot of the fun stuff sprinkled in. Yeah. Um, This is where people got a chance to learn just how fanatical you are about Wisconsin football. Um, obviously for people that are driving, they can't see the helmet in the studio or, you know, in the room behind you. Um, but yeah, this guy loves him some football, um, and obviously loves Wisconsin football. How far back does this go for you? When did that start for you? 
I, well, I grew up in Wisconsin and it's funny you bring this up because I wanted to say this when I, when I, you posted a video the other day and you said, is what you're living for worth dying for? Yeah. And I, and I thought that, you know, I'd never been asked that before. I, and I never thought about that. And, and so even broader than Wisconsin football, which I do love, you know, I, I get paid to cover football for a living yeah. and, and other stuff. And I thought to myself, is this something I would die for? Like, do I love this so much? I would. And the answer is it took me about two seconds. I said, yeah, I, I, I love it that much. Not because of the score on sure. the field, yeah. but it's because I've made memories with my, with my father. Oh, yeah. We talk all the time with my friends. It's, it's something that's so um, sewn into my DNA and the DNA of other people, you know, and I love that video you posted. And I just thought, yeah, this to me, the experience, the memories, the love, yeah. the passion that shared. Uh, so yes, I do love Wisconsin football. I love football in general. I love sports in general. Um, I I used to before COVID, I went to at least one game every year. Things have really? changed slightly since then. Yeah. Um, I can't get enough of the Badgers. Well, for people that live outside of the United States that are listening to this episode, it's hard to under explain the culture around football. And I don't mean how much of America watches football. It was universally accepted that baseball was America's favorite sport, our favorite pastime for about a century. But now the argument can be made, it's football. But when you try to describe the game of football to somebody who's outside the U.S. and never watched the game, it gets really hard basically to describe the game. So imagine that there's somebody in Africa or Asia that's watching this broadcast today, David, and they don't understand the, the game football uh, college or at the, the national football level. Describe it for them in one or two sentences, will you? Oh, one or two sentences. Uh, I did that on purpose, by the way, to make yeah. it really hard for you to yeah. give them. A, um, the shorter the answer, the harder it is to answer that question. I would say football is a sport of sheer brutality that is 100% dependent on teamwork. Yeah. Totally that's, that's, agree. I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got beef with you, man. Um, I love Midwest football. There's this old, you know, uh, late 1800s tradition that goes along with it. And of course you got those leather helmets from 125 years ago that were smashing into each other on snow covered fields all across the Midwest and, you know, other parts of the U S. Um, but, when you start to talk about the pros, because you're a Wisconsin guy, I'm trying to figure out how did you end up rooting for the Lions? Because it just made, made sense to me that you would be a Packers fan. What What's going on there, man? I, I hate the Packers. So that's a good, oh, I get asked no, that, he just said I, that out loud. I, I, I get asked that question quite a bit, and it's actually a pretty simple thing. So my whole family's uh, from Wisconsin. My parents grew up there. But my grandfather on my mom's side, so my mom's dad, he's from Michigan. Okay. And my mom was born in Michigan. So right. they they moved to Wisconsin, but they were all Lions fans. So I was kind of raised. I was, I'm very close to my grandfather. So I just, for some reason, he got to me before my dad could make me a Packers fan. So it's this weird split where I love Wisconsin college sports more than anything. And I cheer for the Detroit Lions, and I grew up in the state of Wisconsin. It's, I it's a get strange... it now. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, I got the same story, man. My grandfather was a huge Chicago's Cubs fan, um, and he spent his entire life literally watching the Cubs play baseball and at begging, cursing, whatever, to get them to win it all. And in his entire lifetime, he never got a chance to watch them win the World Series. Then a few years ago, the Cubs go back and they break a 108-year right. losing streak. And I was like, if only my grandfather were alive today to see this, this would be the greatest moment of his life because he spent his whole life hoping to see this and never got a chance to see it. Well, it, it's really so Wisconsin almost won a basketball title in 2015. And, and I, after the game, I called my dad. We lost at the last second. And I did say to him and, and I've never told this publicly to anyone uh, in, in this thing. I uh -oh, said, oh, here this, we go. I said, I said, this was the one chance you and I were going to have while we were both alive <laughs> to win a national it's, title. It's only going to happen once that we just lost and, it. And we just lost it. And, and I was so I was so sad, but I'm hoping that, you know, the tide turns and maybe while my dad and I are both still alive, the Badgers win a basketball or football. Win. Yeah. 
Well, I just got to say, you truly are an unbeatable fan if you root for the Lions because it's been a rough year for about 30. Ever since Barry Sanders retired, it's been rough right. for Lions fans, basically. It's, I think they've made uh, they've won one playoff game in my lifetime. I was born in, in April of 1992, so it's been terrible. We have winless season. We've had one winless season. We've had some other seasons that came close. But the nice thing about that is you just learn how to set expectations. Right, sure. And it's it's hard to get disappointed if you don't ever think they're going to be good. Um, for example, I expect the Badgers to win. So when they lose, that's tough to stomach. Yeah. When the Lions lose, I'm like, okay, just the Detroit Lions. It's who, it's who we are. By the way, as a guy who lives in South Georgia, that's exactly how I am with the Atlanta Falcons. Every single Sunday when they choke a lead and they lose <laughs> the ball game, the rest of the family's like, are you mad? And I was like, no, I expected that from the start. The only time I really got crushed is when they were doing great, go to the Super Bowl and then Super lose Bowl. in overtime. That crushed my spirits. But I just expect them to lose every game. So it's kind of a Christmas in August or September if they win. Yeah, it's a bonus. It's a bonus right. if the Lions win. <laughs> All right, let's go back to journalism for a few. Um, so you've been around the game for a while. In fact, I want to. I want you to tell people about American Joyride and the show that you're doing now. But before we get to that part, let's say that there's somebody sitting in high school or early, uh, you know, first or second year of college right now, and they're thinking, "Man, David, I'd like to get into this industry too." I think I want to become like a media, a news media superstar. How do I do that? Answer that question for them. But at the same time, because you are in it, tell them some of the ups and downs about, uh, you know, the popular uh, news media in the United States. Well, so the ups and downs is it, I'll get to that point second. My advice to how you want to get into it, find a subject you really like that you want to report on that fascinates you. Could be the military, could be sports, could be spending and go to a publication, say, I'll work for free as an intern. If you let me kind of focus on this or help with this, that will get you way further. Making connections in journalism will get you a million times further than any degree with a piece of paper, yeah. uh, not even close. So get your foot in the door. The ups and downs are when you start in journalism, don't expect to make virtually any money. It's just there's a lot of people who want to do it and there's not that many jobs, which means that you're just going to have to be willing to work for sure. very little at the start. And the, the upside, though, is you can have a real impact. Like you can yeah. break stories that change the narratives. When I was at, I'll give you a perfect example. When I was at The Daily Caller, someone leaked to us um, a transcript that the secretary of the Navy had said after COVID happened, someone had died and he had made all these kind of cold hearted comments yeah, and, right. and, and all these things. And we got our hands on that transcript and we published it. And he actually denied it at first. He said, this is made up. I never said any of this. And then CNN, I believe, got the audio recording uh -huh. and he got fired. So if we had not published that transcript, maybe CNN never goes looking for the audio. Right. right? And, you know, you, we, you have a responsibility to hold people accountable is is a journalist that's what kind of is my big pet peeve when you see journalists kind of suck up to power they want to be friendly with all the people they cover and that's okay you can be friends with them but your responsibility first and foremost is to the reader who's the american public yeah and that's why when we got that transcript uh we published it as i would hope anyone else would have yeah you you just described some really powerful ups and by the way for the person that was driving when you made that statement just a second ago i hope you didn't run your car off the road when you heard david say go to work for free because <laughs> the connections you make are much more important than the money you make early on um but talk about some of the the you know the 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 uh challenges and the the you, you know you described the ups talk about the downs yeah so outside of the money thing is and i and i I feel bad almost saying this to a degree is a lot of people that kind of are attracted to the journalism field. Um, they can be very high intensity, which that's not a problem, but you're dealing with people who are maybe easily offended. You're not maybe dealing with people that are of the highest cut of character is the nice yeah. way to say it. Yeah. They're, they're self-centered. Uh, they're selfish, arrogant, massive egos. And I'm not saying oh, yeah. that I don't have an ego and that I haven't been arrogant. I'm definitely not sitting here pretending like I'm above the fray, not at all. So working in an office environment, if you're not with people you respect and enjoy, it can be very, very brutal and it can be, um, it can wear on you. It can wear on you really bad. You have to learn, and I've only recently kind of learned this, 
when we work crazy hours, you have to learn how to set time aside from yourself. Because we, you know, it's not uncommon for you as a journalist to work an 18 hour day, Uh three or four times a week. Because if the news is coming in, you're, you got, you got to do it. Right. Yeah. And people, myself included, have kind of got lost in that. And you forget, Hey, it's okay to step away for a little bit. You know, my girlfriend will sometimes tell me that we want to go do something. Maybe let's go get some Mexican food. Maybe go see a movie. It's okay to do that. It's like, but the pressure from the top at times is like at all times be doing this and you kind of lose your personal life to a degree. And that has some serious downsides mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, and just with relationships with people. Yeah. Anybody who's devoting that much of their life to current events, because current events always happen. It never stops. You can easily get caught up in that machine and that machine can kind of draw you in and you can lose yourself in that really quick. Um, especially in the 24 hour news cycle that the world is now in, not just the U S but everywhere in the world, 24 hour news cycle and trying to beat the competitors to the story, man, that gets hard to step away, right? It's, it's hard to step away. And and the race to be first also has some serious downsides. People have, there's a lot of people who are okay with getting some details wrong, as long as it means it's first. And um, a good example is Amanda Knox, the American that was arrested uh-huh. in Italy, which was a huge national news story. One of the journalists wrote so many false things about her that turned out to be incorrect. And he was quoted as saying that it didn't matter. He was just trying to be first. Wow. And, and that young woman's life was ruined based yeah. on false information that was spread about her. So resist, you got to resist that urge at all, at all costs. And the more serious the story is, the more caution and judicious you have to be with it because, you know, you can seriously ruin someone's reputation if you make a mistake. Yeah. Well, now it's time for me to get honest with you, man. You've been honest about the, you know, media, popular media industry. Um, I considered a career in journalism while I was still in high school and I got a chance to meet a couple of really, really high profile journalists and listen to them. And after listening to them, I thought, I don't think I want to be like that one day. Um, Two reasons. I'll be very vague here so that nobody sues me. But the ethics that I was hearing from the stage and just the personality, like it appeared to be a straight up prima donna or a diva on that stage. And I thought, man, I don't want that to ever happen to me. So I lost a lot of confidence in journalism when I saw that. And I God in his divine plan pointed me to the U S military instead after that. You made a, you made a much better choice. Um, I think in terms (laughs) of being able to help people, what I would say is really disappointing is I've, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people who are TV personalities Yeah, and I, I've been incredibly disappointed in almost all of them. They're very fake individuals. It's an act. Now, let me say the one person and he was my first boss out of college and I, and I feel incredibly loyal to him is, Tucker was my first boss ever, um, Tucker Carlson uh-huh. of Fox News. And that is one of the few humans who, when you meet him in private, and he's a huge family guy, when you meet him in private, it's no different than what you see. It's incredibly authentic. And I wish I could say that that's what most people were like who have huge followings, but I would be lying to you if yeah. I did. He is a rarity, um, and I I respect the hell out of him. I don't agree with everything he's ever said, sure. but he's a, he's a great family man and he was nothing but kind to me ever. Yeah. Well, there you go for everybody who's listening. Um, if you're wondering about fake news and I'm talking about the newscasters, how fake are there? You're hearing it straight from a guy who's been in the industry for a long time, but he's also telling you there is a player out there who is very much the same guy in private. That's that you see on TV, Tucker Carlson, is a guy um, that is very much the same behind the cameras as he is in front of the cameras, which is rare, right? Oh, it's it's unfortunately very rare. And, and there's other good ones too. I'm not saying they're all bad. I mean, I've there are certainly some good ones, but you'd be surprised how money, attention, and yeah. fame, it changes people. It's oh, almost yeah. like a drug. You get a little taste of it, and either you start to think that you're above everyone or you just have to chase it now yeah. and you start to lose yourself in that chase. And I've seen some people do that. It's been really sad. Unfortunately, yeah. there's, there's some good ones too. If you, if you look back over 
we're going to nerd out for just a second for everybody that's driving. Just bear with me for a second. Before television, news, print journalism, and radio journalists, they were maybe like household names, the really from really famous guys like Ernie Pyle covering World War II. Right. But you didn't have the superstar celebrity kind of journalism that you see today until television came along. And then all of a sudden, television created an anomaly. And I often sit there and watch TV channel, uh, TV news, doesn't matter what news station it is, and say, that person that you're seeing, that, that personality, that celebrity personality that you're seeing on the television right now, that is a relatively new phenomenon in human history. Before that, it was just a trusted friend that was giving you both sides of the story, the whole picture, allowing you to make a decision. And man, how far the pendulum has swung because of the 24-hour on-demand, constant, you know, current events news source uh, all over the world. Right. And and they've learned that the, the worse they... Um the more incendiary they can be, the better the yeah. ratings will be. And yeah. ratings obviously drive everything. So sure. you see, you see networks um, who I'll just use when Trump was president, for example, you saw networks who their entire mission was not maybe telling full stories. It was our ratings spike when right. we criticize Trump or, or whenever there's a scandal. So that's what we're going to do. And if we turn out to be wrong, it's kind of okay to them. Yeah. They're like, we're making money. It doesn't matter. So, yeah, I have a problem with that. And your point about how we've we have all these celebrities now, you didn't have it. You had like Walter Cronkite. What Walter Cronkite told America is what the deal Everybody was, believed, right? <laughs> right? Everybody <laughs> in America believed it. Right. Yeah. Um, hey, by the way, I was doing a little research before we sat down and started talking today. And um by every standard, if you look at the um, trust, uh, America's trust in media in general, news media. It doesn't matter if it's print, radio, internet, television, man, it's plummeting. In fact, a very recent poll by Gallup said that a roughly 16%, one six percent of Americans trust their news source. Doesn't matter what the news is. The other 84% are saying, mm, I'm not sure if that story's legit or if I'm getting the whole story, which if you're if you're in that line of work, man, that makes life really hard because there is a natural skepticism, even if you're doing the right thing and reporting the whole story. So how do you handle that kind of jaded approach to the, to the news today? Well, I think you have to set a reputation for yourself as being consistent and doing your best to give people it straight. And when you make a mistake, you got to stand up there. You got to put your hand up and say, hey, I, I thought I was correct when we printed or when I said this or whatever it might be when I tweeted this. And uh, it wasn't. So I apologize for that. Yeah. The problem, I think the reason people don't trust the media is twofold. Number one, they've been proven wrong a right. lot across the spectrum. Um, again, there's countless examples in the past few years that you could just point to and look at. So when you're consistently wrong, people start to say, well, is anything you say accurate? And of course it is. Um, a lot of it's still accurate, but you right. don't you don't trust because the mistakes. And then point two of that is when they make mistakes, they're very hesitant to admit them or acknowledge them. Uh -huh. You know, my friend uh, at the caller, he got a pit. He was reporting on January 6th. He was he was working his job. Yeah. Uh, filming footage of what was going on at the Capitol. And the New York Times published a photo of him and they labeled him as a rioter. And I don't know if to this day they've issued a correction. Not true. He was there. I mean, literally there with wow. other reporters. Yeah. But if they did issue a correction, it'd be on page 32. Right. It's Nobody not going to be it. on the it's not going to be on the front page like the photo of him, you know, do, there. So that's the stuff. I take great respect and I have great respect for people who will stand up in front of a room and say, hey, here's what I did wrong, you know, yeah, intentional or right. not. And here's what we're going to do to not do it again. I have virtually zero tolerance for people who who screw something up and say, mm, I'm either going to ignore it or I'll find an excuse. Yeah. And I'll add a third to this. The world has been so exposed by social media and uh, other media lies, fabrications, that there's just a distrust for everything, like 
anything that's in the public arena, there's a general, there, most people approach it with a degree of skepticism anyway, just because there's been so many lies and so much fake news. And I'm, I'm using news now as a generic term for every post on social media and every kind of, you know, broadcast. And people are like, I don't even know if what they're saying is true. I I remember watching September uh, or watching January 6th and thinking, this can't be ha- like, is this a dramatization? This can't really be happening. And it took me a while before I was like, wait, I think this is really happening. Like I never in my lifetime thought I'd see that. But I sh- I started watching it with like, ah, this is Orson Welles' War of the World right here. This is a dramatization. It's It can't be real. Right. Um, th- I mean, you said it pretty, pretty well. When you're wrong constantly, there's going to be a, a healthy level of skepticism. And, and that's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical of the news and news outlets. This is America. You should be skeptical. Be skeptical. Be skeptical of what the government tells you. Right. Ask questions. Mm-hmm. That's your right. right as an American. Now, to specifically on January sixth, so we had a bunch of reporters that were there because our offices are in D.C. So they just hopped on. They ran to the Capitol to try to get as much film footage as they were. And I do. I, I you know I have talked to some of them after the fact. And they were on the, I was on my couch watching it on, on CNN and Fox. They, they had not seen anything like it. And I don't think they, I think when they went, they just thought maybe kind of what you were saying, like, this is just going to be over quickly. Yeah. Right. You know, we'll go home. And obviously uh, it was, it was not quite how it shook out. Well, I, I, by the way, I just want to say thanks, man, for being so honest about the industry that you're in. Not everybody is, is willing to be that honest about it, but David, I'll tell you about this incident that happened to me uh, my last year in the Army. And it was kind of surprising um, how this whole thing went down. So I'm in the Command and General Staff College, basically mid-level leaders from across all branches of the U.S. military and foreign service officers, most of us majors, some lieutenant colonels, and we're in this course that lasts for a year. And a couple of very prominent, like some of the biggest names in news all showed up. And there was a a general assembly where we all sat in a large auditorium and listened to this panel talk about the news. And one of the, the, uh, you know, one of the most famous people on the stage, if I mention the name, everybody recognizes it, was pleading with the military to be more forthcoming with stories. And it occurred to me, like, I don't know that this guy on stage understands the disconnect right now between the U.S. military and the media because it's been distorted and misrepresented so much that there's not a person in this room that's going to willingly give an interview, happily or graciously do a story for the guys and gals that are on the platform right now begging for interviews And finally, I stood up and I was like, hey, listen, I just got to say, and this isn't on behalf of the whole group, I'm just speaking my mind right now, but there's a genuine distrust here because media has been around since the beginning of our country. Literally, our founding fathers believed it is important to America to have access to the truth, and it viewed journalism and the news back in those days, newspapers, as the fourth branch of government. This is where you get the truth. This is who holds the government accountable to the people. But I I stood up before that panel and basically said, something's changed in the media, in popular news, and you have kind of made the switch. Instead of informing America and, uh, you know, explaining what happened, it's been pretty obvious that you're trying to influence the way America thinks. And as long as you keep trying to influence the way we think, you're not going to get volunteers from anybody in this group to stand up and do an interview with you. And it shocked, I'll just say this, man, it shocked the the panel on stage. Like they all just sit there with their mouth open when I said that. And I'm like, surely I'm not the first person to ever say this to you. But it sounded like by their response, they'd never heard that before. Well, I will, I will tell you something quickly here that plays right off what you just said. I interviewed three guys probably four months back from a tier one unit, the army special mission. Mm -hmm. And they told me a story on the record in the interview about how they had killed some guys disguised as Afghan police officers who were on their way to go do some bad things. 
And I think they said they pulled up on the vehicle. They tried to get the guys to surrender. They drew weapons, game over, right? Right. The media, some reporter got wind of what had happened. And the initial report to the public was that a United States military team had just burned down like six innocent police officers. And they talk about how they essentially were going to get thrown under the bus for the initial reaction. Right. It's like, yeah. no, we got the right guys. We were vindicated in the end. We yeah. knew we had the right guys. But once you start the lie, now some people won't right. believe you anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, virtually 100% of the news coverage of Black Hawk Down was negative and it was all catastrophic until Mark Bowden wrote this series of articles for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which became the book and the movie Black Hawk Down. Um, none of us that were there talked to the media willingly or even wanted the media to hear the story because I'm talking about the world's biggest news organizations. They were on the ground in the city when this fight goes down and they're broadcasting their, their opinion of what just happened. And a hundred percent of it was negative and it was wrong. And it took, uh, what five or nine years, uh, for the story to come out and actually for the story to get not nine years, it took about five years for the story to come out. And it, when the story came out, it was a very, very different picture. Um, at that point, the only interview I had ever done in my life was directed. I was ordered by my commander to sit in a room and to give an interview to Mark Bowden. I didn't want to be in the room. I didn't want to do the interview. I didn't have a choice. And there was also an intelligence officer that was in the room that was clearing everything that I said. And I tried to evade every question that I could like a good special operator, but the intelligence officer wouldn't let me off the hook. And that's how I ended up in the book and the movie Black Hawk Down, because I was forced to go sit in this interview that I didn't want to be in because I had this genuine distrust for the media, not just Somalia, Panama, Desert Storm all of those. But Somalia for me was like the icing on the cake. I do want to say real quickly, um, the media coverage of Iraq and Afghanistan, especially the embedded journalists, man, they really started to restore a little bit of trust in the media because they did a great job and they reported really well and they honored the whole story, not just the American side, but the whole story. Uh, I really want to compliment those embedded journalists. Being a war reporter is about, in my mind, some people say a White House reporter is as good as it gets. I think being a war reporter, if you get over and you get embedded with a unit, to me, is the Super Bowl. I don't think it's yeah. something that I'll ever do because I don't. it's not you know, really uh, my beat. But if, if they're like, hey, we're sending some guys to Syria and we would love it if you came and, and reported on you know, the Rangers or the special mission unit or whatever, I would pack my bag so fast to be out the door, okay. it wouldn't even be funny. I'm making a note to call some buddies and tell them, if you ever need an embedded reporter, give David a call because he said he would pack his bags and be out the door if you gave him a call. I would love it. Um, hey, you mentioned her a couple of times already in this interview, but tell us a little bit about Shelby. Yeah, so Shelby and I met at the Daily Caller back, oh man, like 2019. I got to remember when we met. Um, and she's great. She she is a same field journalist. Uh, we we go well. We go well, very well together. I really like her uh, family. Her mom's great. Her brother's hilarious. And so it's been, you know, this is the longest I've ever been in a relationship by probably like a two year plus, right? And so you do learn you know, nothing is, you know, you learn about other people, you kind of learn what makes them tick, what they like, things like that. There's always an adjustment period. And you also learn no matter how long you know someone, it, that that's yeah. a progression that never stops. Which, which, which maybe admittedly, maybe admittedly, I struggled with at first, you know, I probably sure. could have done better with that. All right. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to tell everybody how awesome she is, just so you can earn some brownie points when Shelby listens to this interview. So tell everybody how amazing she is. She's amazing. She's the best. She's the greatest. I think she's probably in the other room and can hear this. So okay. um, that's right. kind of funny. But no, uh, my, my girlfriend's the best. I appreciate her every single day. Yeah, I was about to say, if you're going to be uh, explaining your spouse on the opening of Wheel of Fortune, that was about as weak as I've ever heard. But okay, um, oh, Shelby, man. if you're listening, you're amazing is what David wants you to know. Yes, that's exactly. Shelby, you're amazing. That's exactly what I want to say. 
Okay, let's talk about American Joyride. Um, you've been a few, you're several episodes in right now. Why did you start this thing? What was the goal? Um, tell people why they should tune into your podcast and and uh, also describe Outkick and the plat or you know who's hosting the platform for you. So American Joyride, it, you were the first guest that we ever released uh, an interview with. So you Number have a kind one, of special place right there. in Outkick history. Uh, it was started for twofold. Number one, I am a fanatic for military history. And I kind of, you know, people, when you say military history, they think World War II, Vietnam. Yeah. But there's people alive right now that that are in college that weren't alive when 9-11. Right. There's a lot of yeah. them. You can, yeah. you're now old enough to legally drink beer. You were born after 9-11, which is crazy to think wow. about. Yeah. So I wanted to start the series because I wanted to chronicle these stories that a lot of people have never heard before. They might not understand it. And point two was, I, I feel like people have started to get down and out on America. And the best way to remind people that, hey, we got a lot of good people in this country. Oh, yeah. We are a good country. Is to get people on camera who have been in the lowest of lows and have them explain to the audience, one, how good you have it here. And two, what American exceptionalism is. You know, I've interviewed you. Uh, Brad Thomas, who obviously, you know, was in Somalia yeah, with buddy. you, yep. uh, you know, there's a laundry list of guys. And when you hear these guys speak and you, they talk about their teammates and everything they did. And, you know, they always had families back home and things of that nature. And, and they just talk about, you know, they just wanted to survive, not just for them, but the guy next to them. And, and they wanted to avenge everyone after nine 11. If that doesn't inspire you as an American, I, I don't know what will. So I'm trying to give people something to be proud of again and patriotic about. Yeah. And by the way, your interviews are awesome. I just listened to your interview with Brad Thomas. I did an interview not long ago that's going to come out um, in a week or two. And you just nailed it, man. Um, you drew out of Brad some incredible stories and just let an, the nation know what an incredible warrior that guy is. But not just Brad, other people that have been on your show. Yeah. And I, whenever I go into one of the interviews, I wanted, I want them to share something one new and I want the person who's, who's listening to it to feel kind of educated. And I, and there's this particular unit, the army special mission unit that I've got a real um, affinity with. So I love interviewing yeah. those guys. And what I would say about them that I think is so unbelievably unique. Uh, Brad's a good example. If you saw him in a grocery store, you would be like, Oh, yeah. there's just some sure. random just dude. A dude, the just a dude. And it's like, but you know that these guys, which I think is kind of the point, they blend in so well. Right. If they flip that switch, there's nobody better on the planet right. than they do. Yeah. And I also want to tell people one of my favorite things to do when I'm wrapping up a speaking gig and doing some Q&A, I long for people to ask the question about today's military, because like you, David, I love to tell everybody, man, the guys and gals that are currently serving today, they are exceptional. The guys and gals that I served with many years ago, they were exceptional, but they're the, the people that are in the military today are every bit as exceptional. And I'm glad American Joyride is telling America just how exceptional these guys and gals are. They're really incredible people. Oh, without a doubt. And I'm proud of every interview I've done. I'm proud to have gotten to know some of these people. I've stayed in touch with a, with a bunch of them. Uh, and and they're, they're very helpful when I need information. The, you know, they're very generous yeah. with their time. So, and look, if you're watching this and you're an American, you should be very thankful that guys like that exist. Guys like you exist. Guys like the guys you served with exist because someone's right. got to answer that call. Yeah. And you need people like that to do it. Well, I want to compliment you, David. You wouldn't get the chance to talk to a couple of those guys from the special mission units a second time or a third time if you weren't really, really good at your job and also careful the first time you did an interview. You have to build up some trust before those folks start to open up. And when they start to open up, you'll get some incredible stories, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of trust to get those stories out of them. And you're getting those kind of stories, which says a lot about you and your character. Um, it says a lot about you as a journalist. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That's that's one of the nicest things someone's ever said about uh, the man. It's true. I, I'll tell you, none of those guys willingly open up until they can until you've demonstrated more than once that you can be trusted. Then they start to open up. And I, I think rightly so. If I could say something, there was a guy I interviewed um, a few that uh, came out a few weeks ago. He was from the special mission unit. 
And I could tell a little bit early on, he was a little nervous, but he'd yeah. seen the other interviews and he liked sure. it. So we just kind of eased into it. And probably by about 30 minutes in, he's telling all these funny, he wouldn't really talk about like combat, which is of fine, course. but he's telling hilarious stories. He's going, he's just riffing on any time. And you could tell once he realized like, I'm not here to, you know, throw gotcha questions right. at, yeah. he was having the time of his, he was laughing nonstop. Yeah, that is so unusual and so special. The fact that you can get those kind of conversations with those dudes and those guys and gals, it's pretty amazing, which means, hey, if you're driving and listening to this right now, you really need to go follow David and listen to American Joyride because the people that he's talking to, their stories are incredible. David's a David's earned the trust to hear the kind of stories that other guys and gals in journalism are just not going to get. Thank you. I agree. And please do check it out. Yeah. Check them out. Okay. So now this interview was a, uh, is going to turn the conversation a little bit, and we're going to talk about one of your biggest challenges. Of course, with a title like Unbeatable, we want people to hear about one of those unbeatable moments of your life where you were facing a challenge and you had to decide, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm not going to let this these circumstances beat me. So... Um, we described this right before we started recording, man. Let's talk about what you looked like and what life was like for you while you were sitting on the couch in 2018 and then got to a moment that you decided, I got to make a change. So go for it. Yeah. So you asked me kind of what was a low point, if you will. And I, it's not even tough for me to think about 2018. So I'd been in D.C. for a few years, felt like I was kind of making my way a little bit, maybe lacked the confidence I have now as I've gotten older, more mature, but yeah. I was eating really unhealthy. I was drinking a ton of uh, soda. I was drinking too much alcohol. I was not sleeping well. It was just not. And I think part of that was because I got sucked into I'm working nonstop. Yeah. 18 hour days, several days a week. That's going to be really unhealthy, man. I'm not taking the time to food prep. I'm not taking the time to just find healthy alternatives. And then when I am going out with my friends, I've got so much stress to blow off that I'm doing it in a really, really unhealthy <laughs> right. way. Yeah. Um, so I weighed, I weighed, uh, you know, 210, 215. And you can't really see it on camera. I'm not that tall of a guy. So I don't carry 210 pounds uh, very well to put it, to put it mildly. You looked like so a pear is what you were saying. Yeah, it was not, it was not good. I didn't look like, you know, a linebacker who, or a safety uh -huh. who might weigh 210 pounds. So I was sitting on a couch and I, it's funny you talking about football because I was watching Syracuse play Clemson and I had, a big jug of Mountain Dew and, and, and a, a two liter. He's sitting there with a bag of chips it, and a it, two it liter of Mountain a, Dew. It was like, it was like a 32 ounce one you get from Taco Bell. Yeah, okay. There's Taco, there's Taco Bell everywhere on the table and I'm watching this game and I don't know if it was like, I just saw my stomach as I reached over to grab more food. <laughs> but I said to myself, this has got to end. I, it, yeah. This has got to end sooner than later. And that was the last day I ever took a drop of soda. I ended up and I started eating much healthier, you know, chicken, lean beef. I cut back on my alcohol consumption. I, I still do drink beer, uh, just not as much at the level. Right. I don't go out. I don't go out nearly as much as I did. Um, and I lost 70 pounds and then I started working out and I put on a little bit of healthier weight. So I look fuller. I look thing. But, you know, you don't realize, in my opinion, you don't realize how bad of a situation you might be in. Yeah until maybe a year afterwards. Like I look back at 2018, that old time period when I decided to kind of get healthier, you know, work was not going as well as it had been previously. Uh -huh. And I certainly played a role. You know, my attitude wasn't probably what it needed yeah. to be. Um, we had lost some people from the company that were friends. So the dynamics changed, still a great place to work, just dynamics had changed. And, you know, I look back now at 2018 and it's just like, that could even have gone worse. Like a, a, the combination of bad food, tons of sugar and alcohol and, and, and being surrounded by people who maybe aren't also focused on the right things. It doesn't take much to get way off the tracks at that point. Fortunately, uh, I turned it around, um, knock on wood. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I'm happy to answer any questions you got about it. It's just for me, I didn't know maybe how bad of a situation you treat your body poorly like yeah. that. It's going to respond. And, you know, when you, when you don't behave maybe in a manner because you're, you're going out too much or when you do go out, you just so, 
I was so stressed all yeah. the time, like around the clock from work, from personal life. And then when you add substance like alcohol to the mix or anything else, you, you just do things you probably shouldn't do. You say things maybe you regret saying you, you behave in a way that, you know, is unacceptable. And I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just right. saying I look back and I'm like, I could have been more mature. Yeah. You know, when I was 26, 20, it's 26 years. And so I, you know, I don't know if I regret any of that. I'm very happy. I don't think if I had gone through that, that I would have kicked myself into overdrive. Right. Um, yeah, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. And I look back and I'm like, man, it, it, now luckily I had some good friends. Sure. And a couple of those friends, you know, they're like, dude, you gotta, there's better ways of doing this. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, anybody who's watching this uh, episode on YouTube is looking at you and saying, there's no way this guy lost 70 pounds just because by looking at you, you would think he's young, he's fit, he's healthy. Um, 70 pounds based on your height is a lot of weight. And what you just described is right now where many, many people live. They're under high stress and work is not going well. And maybe there's some problems at home. And maybe you're not intentionally trying to ruin your health, but you turn to fast food too often, or here's the truth, you're eating your feelings and trying to make your bad feelings and the stress go away by a little bit too much food or the wrong kinds of food. And then pretty soon they put on 70 pounds that really they should have never put on. But David, as you're talking, I'm thinking anybody who's in your shoes would love to lose 70 pounds, but very few people are actually able to pull it off. And let's be honest, this is 2018. Now we're in 2022 and you've kept it off. And there's a lot of people that are thinking, wait a second, how did he do that? Because I've tried and I tried and I tried and I lose a few pounds and then I put on a few more and I lose a few pounds and I put on a few more. It takes some hard work, some discipline, and a lot of ups and downs to actually lose that weight and keep it off. So what did you do and how did you do it? So I would say for me on the food side, I just started making a ton of food for the week at one time. So there's not even the opportunity to go out and eat poorly because I've got chicken breast and I've got broccoli and it's ready to go. And see, people want to eat fast food, myself included, because it was convenient. Yeah, it's just, just because it's, it's just fast. Good. That's the only right. reason why you're eating it. But then I started packing chicken breast and broccoli and healthy stuff, you know, bring it to the office. That's just as fast if you're willing to put in, right. the, you know, the hour or whatever. And the other thing for me is cutting out soda was the biggest lifesaver, probably even more important because I was than the food because I was just drinking so much Mountain Dew. Yeah, you're it just was, drinking sugar water. You're just drinking. You're literally just drinking sugar, carbohydrates. It's awful for you. So I switched to just black coffee with nothing in it nothing at all. And, and so that's a, you still get caffeine and, and, you know, I, I drink a cup a day. Um, but for me, you know, I, I would, I don't know if my dad would, would want me to maybe say this publicly, but my dad once told me, I mean, he won't care. My dad once told me when I was getting really overweight, he pulled me aside and he's like, you should not be this unhealthy. Like you're all right. You're Way to go, dad. You're kind of trending in a direction that yeah. is going to be bad if you don't start making healthier decisions. And so hearing that from someone you obviously respect and raise you in love, right. that kind of was a kick in the butt. Yeah. And then once I started seeing a little progress, now I'm like, okay, I can do this. And, and I don't want to go back to where I was. Like, I, I, I'm not going back there. We, we've left that there. And you don't miss it. That was the thing. I don't miss soda. I don't miss the way I used to eat. I, I still will occasionally eat pizza, but I also really like, you know, chicken and lean yeah, beef and right. venison. And so my, I'm not an expert. I don't know what would work for other people, but for me, it's just was constantly reminding myself, Hey, you don't want to be where you were a year ago. You don't want to be where you were six months ago. And once you kind of see it in the mirror, um, for me, it's just like, I'm never going back to that. And then you, you feel a little more confident. You feel healthier. You feel yeah. like you have more energy. And, and that once you get that, you don't ever want to give it up. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying this because these are the kind of interviews that they did on Oprah and Dr. Phil after somebody's lost a ton of weight and they're sitting there in tears saying, I can't imagine how bad my life was beforehand. And now that I've you know, now that I've got healthy and active and got my weight under control, I have a totally different life and they don't want that for anybody. 
but I'm also thinking there are people that are thinking, okay, David, you're a celebrity. You got uh, access to the greatest uh, fitness coaches and nutritionists and stuff like that. And what you're hearing in this interview is no, it's just hard work and discipline and not deliberately choosing not to fall back into that lifestyle. And allow me to talk about my girlfriend again, real quick. Shelby yeah, was let's the talk one about that Shelby. really. Shelby's the one that really stuck a boot up my butt to start working out. So when we started dating, I had already kind of lost the weight, but now it was at a point where I wasn't, I wasn't obese anymore. I wasn't really overweight, but I still wasn't as healthy as I could have been. Like I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't putting on muscle. Uh-huh. And she, she was like, here, it's not that hard. You can do some simple. You start with some simple exercise. <laughs> Let me She's show you how pro- to work out. Right. She's a former pro athlete. She played pro tennis for five years. I wow. Think. So, yeah. so she was instrumental, uh, and we got a home workout, um, um, uh, machine, if Thank you will. And, and it's been great. So, you know, if I'll credit her for her biggest role in that part of my journey, it was getting me on weights, getting me working out because then it did definitely feel like, okay, I lost the weight. Now let's take another step forward. And I probably don't do that if we're not dating. Yeah, for everybody who's listening right now, what you're hearing is David's unbeatable story is he's saying, I'm not going to give back in to the sugary soft drinks and the fast food from Taco Bell. I I don't want to live like that anymore. And so stays disciplined even years later so that he doesn't fall back into the same routine. And that's what everybody, no matter what your struggle in life is, you have to consciously decide, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to do what it takes so that I don't fall back into those old habits or so I don't give into these circumstances. And David, uh, I would have never known that you lost 70. There's nothing about you that looks like you lost probably half of your body weight over again um, in that one year. It's impressive. I have a photo that I always look back on. It's kind of like a little reminder. And it's like kind of me when I was at like the peak of my weight. And I yeah. look at it as a good thing. Like that is what, like, this is where you came from. Like you were there, now you're here. So. Yeah. Well, listen, people have gotten to know you in this interview professionally as a journalist. They've got to know a little bit about your family and your relationships. But last question, um, I'm doing this with all the guests. Uh, it's a totally hypothetical question, but this is just a way for the fans to get to know you better as a person. Um, let's say you got a free day. There's absolutely no work on the horizon. Nothing needs to get done. You can go anywhere you want to go. You can do anything you want to do and you can do it with whoever you want. That probably, I should probably should have said whomever you want. Where do you go on this free day? What do you do? But more importantly, why? I, you know, I think that's an amazing um, um, question. And I will tell you the answer. If I could do anything with anyone on one day, I think me and my dad, we'd probably shoot some trap in the morning. Uh, right. in the backyard. I That's like how, how we start. Going. And then we'd schedule that day is going to be the day when the Badgers have their biggest football game of the year. And then we're going to go to the football game and then we're going to come home and my mom's going to be there because she probably doesn't want to go to the game. And we're just <laughs> going to spend the rest of the day. Maybe we eat, we eat dinner on the back porch. Uh, we overlook the field and, and that to me, shooting trap in the morning, going to a Badger football game with my dad, a big one, an important one and coming back that if I had one day, that would be it, start to finish, no questions asked. Wow, I just wanna point out two things about this dream day of yours. One, he said the Badgers and not the Lions. And two, <laughs> he didn't even say the Badgers had to win, just going to the game and hanging out with dad, spending time with mom at home. That does sound like an ideal day for a very busy guy. So man, thank you, David, for being part of this episode. Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. Okay, guys, here's my challenge for you now that we've wrapped up this episode with David. He sat on a couch in 2018 and looked at the TV and decided, I don't want to look like this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And then what happened next is David started doing hard work and he stayed with it and he didn't fall back into the same routines. Chances are there's an area of your life that you're not happy with right now. Why don't you just take David's recipe and make the decision, do the work, but more importantly, remain disciplined so that you don't fall back into that same routine. And you can look back a few years from now and tell the same story to your friends, your family that David can tell 
about how he decided to change the way he looks and ultimately change his life. Hey, I just want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for being a, a, a follower. Thank you for being a listener to this episode of Unbeatable. And if you just stumbled across this podcast and you like what you heard, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? I'd also tell you to follow us on social media because we put a lot of great content out there. But if you really want to become like a super fan, there is no such thing as a super fan. But if you really want to dive deep, why don't you go ahead and join the Unbeatable Army? We've got exclusive documents, PDFs that will keep you motivated, exclusive videos to pump you up when you're really struggling. And all you have to do to get that kind of content and regular information from me is go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope you have a great week. I'll see you right back here next time.